Well, good morning, church. Yeah, so sickness seems to have descended upon the land. Uh, and so, so we definitely uh, want to pray for all those afflicted. Miss Laura, not feeling well today. Corey, not feeling well today. Uh, Mary Joy, my, my three-year-old, not feeling well today. Brianna, you did a spectacular job leading us today. Thank you so, so much. Um, guys, as, as we get ready, I pray that if you have God's word, if you would open to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews 9, uh, we're in 10 verses today. And these verses, uh, at, at outset, I don't know if, if when Pastor Matt was reading them, um, some, sometimes at, at an initial read, we look at it and we say, what is really, is that going to be a sermon? Where's the sermon in there? It's almost like we take God's word and like, what, what else is in there? I promise you, as, as we journey through these 10 verses together, I pray, as it has done for me, um, the Lord, and through the, the work of his Holy Spirit, stirs your heart uh, and stirs your affections to see Jesus more beautifully than you've ever seen him before, uh, in hopes that whenever we leave here, we are different people than who walked in today. Um, uh, that, that being said, let, let's go ahead and jump right in uh, as we, we are in Hebrews chapter 9 today. Um, but before we, we read verse 1, you need a little bit of a recap. And we remember uh, that the author here is writing to, to these Hebrew people. Uh, they were once uh, adherents to Judaism. They, they worshiped according to the, the covenant of Moses. Um, they, they worshiped according to the law of God. Um, they held to the sacrificial system because in that system, they found some sort of, some semblance of peace, right? Um, and so at some point in their journey, um, they have, this group particularly, has trusted their life to Christ and things had been different for them. Uh, and so they are walking in Christ. They are, they are believers. They're, they're really baby believers. Um, and then, then hardships and trials happen. There are persecution coming from from the people that they left out of Judaism. They're, they're mad at them. Um, there's persecution coming from Rome. There, there's, there's mad at them there. Um, seemingly, as, as we read further into this letter, there's sickness in, amongst their people. And they start to wonder, is this it? Is this, is this what we were supposed to do? And probably like you and I, whenever things start getting hard or, or, or things don't go our way, or even worse, when we start to feel sick or we start to feel badly or whatever it would be, we have a tendency to go back to what's familiar and easy because it's in those places we can find comfort because we don't have to think too hard. We, we don't have to really process too much, we can say, this is what we know. We've done it our whole life. Our parents have done it. Our grandparents have done it. Generations before us have done it this way. So some of these people have started to leave the following of Christ, leave Christianity, and they started to go back to Judaism. And so the author here, particularly in chapter eight, builds this case that guys, if you go back to that, you're going back to a shadow. Because you got to remember, everything that God gave Moses, it was good, and it was good for a season, but that was never supposed to be final. It was incomplete when he gave it. There's a reason that the, the priest had to continually go and do priestly things. There was a reason the offerings had to go and be continually offered before God, because nothing was ever good enough, great enough, or grand enough, so it never had staying power. So if you want to go back to that, guys, you're going back to a shadowy version of something that God has for you. So the, the author ended that chapter by telling the readers um, that, that, that Jesus, through the work on the cross, made a new covenant with the people. So, so we read this last week to end, but I want to read it again because it's going to launch us into chapter 9. So, so if you're in chapter 9, just kind of go back. If you're, uh, my, my Bible has it kind of in the second column. Just go back to verse uh, 9 of Hebrews chapter 8. Here's what it says. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each other, one his neighbor or each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's a pretty great covenant. That's new. That's, that's what Jesus did on the cross. Now remember, he didn't come to abolish the law or abolish the old way. He came to fulfill it. And we're going to talk about that uh, through chapter 9 and into chapter 10. But, but we see this. In today's text, the author continues to build on this idea that Jesus and the new covenant that he offers is far better than anything that these people have ever experienced from the old covenant. And he starts with where they worshiped, the tabernacle, or what's another word for tabernacle? Tent, right? Okay, so, so Hebrews chapter 9, we'll start in verse 1. Here, here's what it says. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So some of the first uh, century Christian thinkers and, and these, these believers were beginning to feel the weight of life. And they started to think, man, this, this following Jesus, it's too much. So, so think of it this way. We are finite beings. That, that means that we have a beginning and an end, right? God is an infinite God. That means he has no beginning and no end. So, so, so we talk about it often, but let your mind wrap around this if it can, okay? You will never know all there is to know of God this side of eternity. You ever thought about that? How, how does that treat your brain? Does it, just, does it make things speed up or is it like mine that goes... And it just stops, right? We will never know. And even the, the, the crazy thing, the scriptures allude to this, we will never know a drop of all there is to know about God this side of eternity. God is infinite where we are finite. So it's sometimes that we get in situations that are bigger than us that scare us. I will always go back in my mind thinking of this scenario as Gideon coming home from Ethiopia. Gideon uh, was four years old at the time he's come home. Uh, he lived in Ethiopia next to a small body of water. That body of water was, was unique. Uh, it had a lot of critters in it. Um, he would tell us stories of having to run from the alligators uh, and having to take baths real quick in and out of the water so the alligators wouldn't get him. I don't know if that was real or his mama was telling him, you better hurry up and get out of the bath, right? I don't, I don't know how that, how that shook out, but, but that was the only water he had ever seen. So we fly him all the way across uh, the Atlantic into Washington, D.C., D.C. to New Orleans. New Orleans, we drive him to Picayune, and we're home for just a little while, and we go down to Bay St. Louis, the beautiful beaches of Bay St. Louis, as it were, uh, and we go, stand, and we're just like in our head, we're dreaming, we're dreaming, he is going to love this, this is going to be great, we're blessing our son with a day at the beach, and look, so we get there, and he sees the, the whitish sand. Get that? It's kind of white. It's Bay St. Louis. Never mind, Corey. I love you. Corey's from Bay St. Louis. Anyway, and so, so, so we go, and he's running, and we're flying a kite, and he starts walking slowly to the edge of the water, and I, it's, it's seared in our memory. We even have a picture of it, and he's sitting there, and he's staring, and we're thinking, oh, this is just a great moment, and he turns around, and he is sobbing. And I'm like, this backfired on us. What, what's going on? Gideon, what's wrong, buddy? Come back. And, and his broken English at that time told us it's too scary. It's too scary to look out there. I don't, I've never seen anything like that. Guys, a lot of times that's how it feels to people when they start to see the fullness of God on display. It's too scary. 
They've never seen anything like it. The vastness of what they see makes them feel tiny and small. Some people, they find comfort in that. Some people, it terrifies them. If you believe that vastness is for you, there's comfort. If you are unsure what that vastness represents, there's fear. And so for these people, they started to see a bigger picture of God, and that vastness caused them to be deathly afraid. And so what what the author is doing here, he's saying, look, look, listen to me. Don't don't run back. Don't settle for for good when you got something great coming. Look, don't don't go back to the old way just because you're scared, just because you're nervous. And And he starts to paint a picture of what they're going to. And out the gate, it's supposed to show them that it's a shadowy land that they originally loved. Said the first covenant had regulations for worship. You couldn't worship when and how you wanted to. You had to worship according to the way the first covenant stated. Not only that, but the only place of holiness was an earthly place of holiness. The author is trying to show them, guys, it was good, but it wasn't great. Don't, Don't go back there when you got something better around the corner. The covenant was good. It was God's provision for God's people at that time, but it was always pointing to something far better. Then we get to the next uh, four verses, okay? And and this is going to show us a picture of of the, the tent or the tabernacle, okay? It says, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which there were a lampstand and a table of the bread of presence, and it was called the holy place. The first section was called the holy place. Walking into it, you would see, if if you were to walk into the tent, on the left side, you would see a lampstand. Um, in this lampstand, if, if you wanted to know where these regulations are, if you start in Exodus 25 and go to Exodus 30, all of this is spelled out by God for Moses and Moses to give to the people. So this lampstand, the lampstand that we talk about here and even the lampstand in Revelation, I don't know what comes to your mind. Uh, Narnia, if you guys like Narnia, C.S. Lewis, kind of like a street, street post lampstand, don't think of that. Okay, think, think something different. Think of a lampstand that according to Exodus 25, there is to be a pole that goes straight up and a lamp would go on top. And then on, on the left side of the lamp, there were to be three buds. One comes up here, another one comes up under it, and another one comes up under that, and they're all going to be even on this side. And then on the right side, there are three buds as well. And one's going to come up here, another one's going to come up here, and another one's going to come up here. On the screen, you're going to see some things that were in the temple, and I'm going to show you what it looks like. Go to the next one. You see on the right side? What's that called in the Jewish tradition? It's the menorah. That's what the lampstand is. And so so these are the things that are going to be in the temple. And so I, I want to walk you through it, okay? Go back to that first slide if you don't mind. I want to give you a little bit of a picture so we could walk in. This is only a representation of what we believe an artist's rendering of what we believe the, the, the tabernacle looks like, okay? So if you look there, you will see three unique sections, but you're only going to be able to see two, and I'm going to help walk you into the third, okay? The outside, it's called the outer court. It's that big fence that goes all the way around. Um, you see at the very front, there is a gate or a, a curtain that is going to open up. Inside that is called the outer court. Um, Jewish brothers and sisters, really Jewish brothers, could walk into there and they could, they could worship, okay? On either side, you're going to see tables. Those are sacrificial tables. That's where the sacrifices were to be prepared, right? So, so if you walk a little bit further, there is the big square thing. Um, that is the, the altar, 
um, that they are going to, to prepare these things and get them ready. Then, then right in front of that uh, is the bronze basin. It's where the priest, before they go in, and we're going to explain that in a second, they would ceremonially get themselves ready to walk into something called the holy place. Okay? So if you see that, that, that structure in the back, right, it kind of... It kinda, for this, to me, it looks like a, a, a container, like it would be on the back of an 18-wheeler. Uh, but it, it would be a tent, okay? And inside these are two segments. The first segment is the larger segment. That segment's called the holy place. If you were to walk into that tent, and only priest could go into that tent, but they could go in as often as they needed to, day or night, you would walk through the, the curtain, and on the left side would be the menorah. And it was their job to keep the candles lit. On the right side would be the, the, the place or the, the bread of presence is the, what, what we see it here as. And, and it's a small table. It's kind of what we get our Lord's Supper table look from. And this bread of presence, it would be if you walked in, menorah's on this side. On the right side is the bread of presence table. And on that table, there would be 12 loaves of bread. What do the 12 loaves represent? What do you think? 12 the 12 tribes. But don't, don't think loaves like we go to Walmart and get loaves. Think of like flat pancake loaves. And they're to be stacked six high on either side. And inside, uh, on, on, on the middle portion, there's usually a vat of wine that is sitting there. And those, uh, those bread, those, those loaves of bread were to sit there at all times. They're supposed to be there um, from, from the, the end of Sabbath day to the beginning of Sabbath day. Those bread were to stay there to be untouched. But on the Sabbath day, the priests were to come in and they were to eat the entirety of it. Guys, it was a good day to be a priest. They would eat all the bread and then they would have to make new bread and put it out. That's what we would see on the outside. So in verse 2, you can keep that slide up if you don't mind. We're going to talk more about it in just a second. For a tent was prepared in the first section that would be inside that back portion in the first room that's called the holy place. There was a menorah or the lampstand on the left and the table of presence on the right. And then verse 3 tells us this, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Behind the second curtain was called the holy of holies. These curtains were blue and purple and they had cherubim skillfully woven into them. So, so if you were to go back in Exodus, that tells us that, what they were supposed to do. Cherubim were not just a cute decoration for the temple, right? So, so you may say, well, what's a cherubim? We, we really don't know exactly what it looks like. We, we have some ideas of, of what Scripture paints for us. I, I've never seen one, and, and I'd be willing to bet you've never seen one in real life. But if we go back and we read the Scriptures, do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned against God and they got kicked out of the garden? What did God put to guard the gate so they wouldn't come back in? Two cherubim with flaming swords. Like the, these weren't like precious moments. Oh, look, it's the holy place. This was warning, warning, do not go in or you will die. That's a big deal. And it was to be skillfully woven. And so, so you had this, this portion. And I don't know if you, you can put yourself here. If you're to walk past that second curtain, with, it was purple and it has the cherubim on either side. If you walk past that wrongly, even on the right day, but you do it wrongly, you die because what's behind there is so holy, we can't exist in its presence. And it's just a curtain separating us between the, the, the back and the front. And so when you walked into that front room, guys, you don't just walk into there. Oh, guys, hey, how's it going? 
There was this sense of awe and wonder. And even in the temple court, or the, the, the tabernacle court, the outer court, when you walked in, you knew that this was something different. Now understand where this was, it's dead center of the people of Israel. It's where it was supposed to be. This is a mobile version. It's what God gave to Moses to envision as they traveled in the wilderness. They were to bring this with them. When they set up camp, they were to set this up. Why? Because that represented God's presence with God's people. It's the first thing we see out of the gate. God wanted to talk to them. God wanted, God wanted to, to be with them, but they had to understand that it was on God's terms and not theirs. That's why it says in verse 1, there was regulations to this first covenant. And even, even, even at its most holiness, its holiness was set in an earthly place. Why does the cherubim give us warning? Well, we'll talk more about that in verse 7. Okay? Look, at, look at verse 4. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. All right. So behind the second curtain was the golden altar of incense. Every morning when the priests come into the holy place, they were to burn incense while doing his duties and trimming the lampstand and checking the bread. Now, here's where we need to take a time out. Right? So any Old Testament scholars in the room, if you've studied uh, what, what the, the tabernacle or the tent uh, looked like and the specificity of it from Exodus, and you look at what the author of Hebrews says, here is where we have an issue. Here's why. Because if you go to Exodus chapters 25 through 30, it's going to tell you that the altar of incense is supposed to be outside the Holy of Holies. What did this just say? Where is it located? On the inside of Holy of Holies. So, so we need to take a time out. We need to discuss this real quick because it's a big deal. Here, here's why it's a big deal. You say, well, that's, that's not a big deal. It's not a huge variant. Here's the deal. If there's any variant in Scripture, what's to say salvation is not a variant? You got that? So if you see something that, that's an irregularity from the scriptures, we really need to, to, to look at it and say, well, why does, does Exodus, why does God, who is very clear to Moses, and Moses writes down very clearly, say that it needs to be in the holy place and not the most holy place, but the author of Hebrews says it's in the most holy place. There, there's some reason to that. Let, let's take a few minutes and talk through that, okay? Some people get hung up on this discrepancy. Here would be my encouragement to you, don't. Don't, don't get hung up on it, but we, knew, we do need to discuss it. Here, here's why. The point isn't the details. The point is that the details are a shadow of something better. All right? Here, here it is. This is a major detail in the Old Covenant way of worship. If they were to get it wrong, it's a deadly consequence. So if God told Moses, that that altar of incense is supposed to be in the holy place and not the most holy place. And seemingly by the reading, it's supposed to be in the holy place and not the most holy place. Why? Because it's supposed to be burning incense while the priest daily are checking on the lampstand and checking on the bread. Could they burn incense if it was in the most holy place every day? No. So, so it, it, seems, it seems that the author of Hebrews is a little bit off on, on their understanding of what Moses said, just, just for a moment. Or is he? Because he's painting a picture of something better to come as well. In the new covenant of Christ, those details have been taken care of. Even better, listen. The burning of incense was to represent the prayers of the priest constantly going up on behalf of the people. So imagine this. 
One day a year, they get to walk into the Holy of Holies. We're going to get to that in verse 7. But every other day of the year, including the most holy day, or, 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 or including Yom Kippur, they're to walk into the holy place. And while they are taking care of the lantern, while, or the lampstand, while they are taking care of the bread of presence, that they are supposed to light this incense, and it was representative of the, the priest praying on behalf of the people. Well, guess what happened with Jesus on the cross? The great high priest walked through the curtain, he walked into the Holy of Holies and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And how long is he going to be there? Forever. And what's he doing? What, what, what's he doing for an eternity for us on our behalf? He's praying for us. He's interceding for us. So, so listen, I, I want to read this for you. It's, it's beautiful stuff. Romans 8 is probably my favorite uh, chapter in all of the Bible just because it is chock full from the beginning to the end, just theologically rich, and it's given us some encouragement. I'm going to read for you Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Listen to what it says. Who is to condemn you? Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was the one who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Right? So, so Jesus is the one who went into the holy place, sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he's constantly in his ear saying, man, you, you got to believe the best about Josh. Josh just, look, look I'm, i got a plan for Josh, and he's doing this, and it's great. God, look at Josh. He's, he is interceding on our behalf. He's interceding on your behalf. How long? Forever. So when the author of Hebrews, don't, don't think that he made a mistake in writing that. What he is trying to show them is, look, you go back to the shadowy place, you don't have that. But if you believe what's true, let me, let me show you what it was supposed to be. We're going to take that prayer and we're going to move it past the curtain. And if we had the time, what you would notice is each one of those segments represents something in the person of God. That when you enter and then you make an atoning sacrifice, then you were cleansed before God, then you can have some sort of fellowship with God, that there is light and there is substance and then there is prayers and then one day a year, potentially you can walk through the holy place, somebody on your behalf and make an atoning sacrifice for the totality of your life. But then after that day, it's over. But when Jesus died on the cross in that same temple or in that same tabernacle room, what happened to the curtain? It was torn. From top to bottom, what happened to those cherubim? They fell, no longer guarding the access to God. Why? Because God now calls his beloved to run to him and sit in his presence and enjoy who he is. How long do we get to do that? That's the hope we have in Christ. And that's what he's trying to show them. Look, you don't want to go back to that old way because maybe, just maybe, on the greatest day of the year and your priest is doing a really good job, you have a little bit of worship. But as believers in Christ and what he's done for you on, on, on your behalf, guys, you have unfettered access to the king. And that never goes away and it never changes. But then the main piece inside the holy place. So, so we're still in verse 4. Look at the second half. It's the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, now this is, this is also a little bit of a variant According to Exodus, what was the only thing in the Ark of the Covenant? The tablets. Right? So it wasn't the Aaron's staff that budded just yet, and it wasn't the jar of manna just yet. 
right? But, but whenever we go back to Exodus, the only thing that was in there was that the tablets that God gave to Moses recording the law, they put it in the Ark of the Covenant. Well, here, the author of Hebrews tells us, and it, it does, as, as history goes through, we, we see where God's people were allowed to put two other items in the Ark of the Covenant. And it was Aaron's staff that had budded and it was also the jar of manna, just to prove God's faithfulness. And it was a testimony that whenever they were to see it, they were to remember how God's been faithful through generations in the past, and God will be faithful for generations to come. But inside that, this, this most holy place, here's, here's the picture of what happens on there. Look at, look at verse 5. And above it, above the ark, there were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So, so on the top of the ark, these cherubim, again, we, we only know what the artist's rendering are, but it was as if they were on one side and the other of the ark, and they were facing one another, and their wings went out forward as to cast a shadow over the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the place that God was supposed to sit. It was, in, in, in effect, a throne for God, for him to come down, to sit, and to dwell with the people. But verse 5 ends in a strange way. Because after going into detail, he says, of these things, we can't go into detail. Wait a minute. You just went into pretty good detail in the last five verses. Why are you saying now that we can't go into detail, right? The message is, don't get hung up in the details. Remember, it's a shadow of something better. It's as if we were to spend our time. And we've done this on some camping trips with the kids or even late night in the room whenever we have a flashlight and we're goofing around where we will, we will make shadows on the wall and we'll look at them and say, well, what do you think you see? And they, they, they will start to trace out on the top of the tent or in the, the wall of the room and they'll say, well, oh man, I see a wing and then I see, I see a head and the wings are moving. It kind of looks like a butterfly, Dad, right? Or, or, or maybe that, that looks like oh, that's some eyes and it looks like a mouth. And is, that, is that a dog, right? So I don't know if you guys ever, those are the only two shadow animals I know, so this is my, my ability is going to end right there. But it would be the equivalent of trying to spend our life figuring out those shadows and their exactness. And the author's saying, that is silly because that's not what's real. What's real is what's casting the shadow. Don't get, don't get caught up on those details because they don't matter. They're pointing to something greater. Go, goes back to what we talked about last week and, and whatever the, whoever the author is talking about Plato's forms, the analogy, uh, the allegory of the cave, Right? And so, so here he's saying, look, we're not going to go into great detail here. So the message is, don't get hung up on the details. The shadows are pointing to something greater. So now we transition to verses 6 through 10. And this is going to talk more about the priest and what they're going to be doing. Okay, verse 6 says this. These preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. Uh, for us, that just seems like a sentence to get us to the next, but to them, it's a very sobering thought. Here, here's why. In the holy place, in the first section, the priests were to go regularly and do their priestly duties. This was both to be informative and transformative for them. It tells us what they did and how often they did it. How often did the priests have to go in and do their duties? Regularly. All the time. Every day. Without stop. Why? Because nothing they did was ever good enough. How would you feel about your salvation if you had to rely on somebody else who never did a perfect job? You would always be in doubt. You would always be wondering. Even if he's going to build on this. Just, just wait. 
What they did was necessary, but it wasn't everlasting. Verse 7. But into the second, talking about the second chamber, the most holy place, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So when it comes to the most holy place, only the high priest could enter, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, and with him he had to take blood for the sins of himself and the sins of the people. What happens if he goes in there out of order according to God's instructions? He dies. And again, I know you hear this because we've talked about it like 72 times in the last three weeks. But I, don't, I, don't, I, hope, you don't, I hope you don't miss this. The wages of sin is death. Sometimes we get so comfortable in our sin because we think that's who we are. We find our identity. We say, well, that's just who we are and that's just what I do. And so we no longer try to fight sin in our life. Do we understand what the fallout of sin should be for us? It is death for the, for the high priest, for the holy man of God, for the greatest of holy men among the people. His penalty was death if he walked there out of, uh, out of order for God's instruction. And so for us, look, we understand that we are covered under the grace of Christ in the new covenant. But hear me, we should never be lackadaisical about our sin. We should never just go and say, oh, well, I've, I've sinned today. Well, God's going to forgive me. Or I can do that because I know God's going to give forgiveness. Because that's not the heart of a believer. We, we want to know. And listen, I, it's really hard. I don't really like the language. When I, when I hear people say it, it kind of makes me cringe. Well, you're just going to make God cry. No. You're going you're to break the law of God? I believe if God were to cry, he was going to cry when his son went to the cross on our behalf. Like he paid that penalty. And so, so when we do that, we have to understand we are taking what Christ has done and we are making a mockery of the cross. And so for us, here's a question that we've got to ask ourselves. Do we take sin seriously enough? Will we be perfect? No, I wish. I really do wish. It would save me a lot of trouble. Save me a lot of heartache. We're not going to be perfect. But just because the fact that we're not going to be perfect, does that give us the freedom to go on and sin? Just how we want to, when we want to, and do whatever we want to? No. Because God's calling us to something better, something deeper, something more long-lasting in that. So here's what he says in the, in the second, in the second, the, the most holy place, the high priest goes, but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people. Verse 8, that's where it's getting good, guys. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. All right, let's take a minute about that. The Holy Spirit's made clear that as long as the holy place is needed, God's people can't come boldly into his presence. So can you imagine, could you, could you throw back up the, the picture of the, the tent? Can you imagine if people just were hungry for God and they're standing outside, if you're looking here, if they're standing outside these gates and they're getting ready to go in and they say, we're going to see God and they start to rush the scene and they bust through the first and they get into the second and then they get into the third. Of course they wouldn't do that because they knew what that would mean. But as long as this scenario is taking place, not everybody was welcome into that court, the outer court. Not everybody that was in the outer court was welcome into the holy place. And not everybody who was in the holy place is welcome into the most holy place. 
So while this scenario stands, we don't have unfettered access to God. That's what, that's what the Spirit's saying for us. Well, what's that mean? Well, think about it this way. If you want to go back and you want to serve the law, that's the best you got. It's the best you, and that still stands today. If you want to believe that you are your best hope and God's going to help you along the way, just kind of clean up your act, that's the scenario you're buying into. That you're buying into a scenario that God's going to clean up the mess you made. What he's offering you is something far greater. He's not here just to clean up your mess. He's here to fix your mess maker. Because that, that is, that, that you can bring all your sin and all your dirtiness and all of the effects of the sin start to become washed away, but you are still a sinful person at heart. Nothing has changed inside of you. But when that, when that, when that curtain tore, something different happened. So it's not just the high priest who can go in, but we can now come boldly to the throne of grace with confidence because now our hearts are changed. The mess and the mess maker now come before God and we find new life in him. And so if you're here today and all you have been doing is coming to God, fix my mess and fix my mess and fix my mess, please hear me. That is good, but there's something greater offered to you. Trust him with your whole life. Trust him with your heart. Yeah, it's going to be changed. Yeah, it's going to be different, but I promise you it's going to be good. Look, look what it says, verse 9. So, so it talks about uh, this is symbolic for the present age. Present age not being present age of our, our age, like reader, but present age that that is intact whenever it, Exodus 20, 25 through 30. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But they only deal with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. What does that mean? It means this. That thing can't fix what's broken in you. It can only clean up the effects of what's broken in you. That symbolizes religion. What God offers to you now is relationship. That's why John 14, 6 is so paramount to our faith. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father unless they come through me. And that's still true for you guys. Listen to me. There's no amount of sacrifice you can make that you can get to God and him fix your heart. There's no amount of offering that you can give for, for, for God to look at you and say, you know what, you've paid the penalty. Now I will fix your heart. No, it will take a relationship with Jesus Christ. So, so for you, here's the question. And look, I get it. It's eight o'clock on a cold morning and everybody's sick. The, you guys are the crew. Y'all the cream of the crop. But y'all need to hear it too. Don't base your relationship with God on religion. Base it on Christ. Because he's the one who makes everything different. Yeah, we're going to make mistakes. Yeah, there's going to be messes to pick up. But we don't want Jesus just to clean up our mess. We want him to fix our heart. And he said that he would. Why was the shadowy place of worship not complete? Well, the arrangements and the gifts and the sacrifices... They couldn't make the perfect. They couldn't, they couldn't fix the conscience of the worshiper. They always wondered. They always were prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So here's our effort. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. What? Seal it for thy courts above. That's our prayer. 
that, that we ask God to take all of us and who we are, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we surrender it to him. And we don't have to go through a priest. Guys, we don't, we don't have to go through a high priest. This is why the Reformation was so important. And just to be clear, at the end of verse 10, it's not talking about the Protestant Reformation. He's not saying until Martin Luther comes and puts some stuff on the, 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 the church in Wittenberg. But it's still true. It's why, it's why the Protestant Reformation was such a big deal, because the church was still teaching, you need a mediator to go before you. No, you don't. You don't have to come to me and pray at the front of the church for you to make a decision with God. You can do that right now. When you're sitting at home and you're under conviction of the Spirit, you don't have to wait till you come to church to do business with God. You can do it right where you sit, where you were dead in your trespasses and God breathed life to you. That's where we are made new. I love the fact that in my office I've prayed with many people to receive Christ. Because that's not the only place that God moves. God moves everywhere. God moves in the broken places. He moves in the disgusting places. He moves in the dark places because that's the people that he loves and he rescues, redeems, and restores. The old covenant and its regulations were good for a season. But now there's something far better and his name is Jesus. So here's some takeaways for us with the few minutes that we have left. When life gets hard and we have a tendency to revert back to what we know and what's comfortable to us, even if it's not good for us, even if it's not best for us, we still like it. But we have to remember that God has a better way. Yes, following Christ is a big deal. Yes, it can be overwhelming at times. But I promise it is absolutely worth it. As we continue through chapter 9, the scriptures will point exactly to that. Now, don't pack up, please, because I want us to talk through this. I started with the, the illustration of Gideon standing by the water being terrified at four. Now, Gideon's 11, and he would live in the water if he could, because he's realized that that vastness is a beauty to him. There's no longer a fear of, oh, no, it's going to get me. There's a fear of respect. We, we understand at any moment there's critters living in that water and there's currents in that water we don't want to mess with. But it's in the, the understanding of what it is and, and the, the believing of what it is that we find enjoyment. So here, here it is. For anybody listening, maybe online or maybe in this room, and you believe that the vastness of God is too much. I mean, do I go here or not go here? Can I, can I do this? Can I not do that? Look, those regulations, they're just temporary. Those are guardrails for our life, pointing us to something better. When you realize that you are forever in the arms of God and nothing can ever change that, there is absolute freedom in that. It's not a life of don't do that. It's a freedom, a, a life of go and do this forever. One is religion, one is relationship. I invite you to choose the relationship that comes only through the person and the work of Jesus Christ.